Welcome back, Chelsea fans, to another episode of the Roman's Empire podcast, where all we do is talk Chelsea and talk shit about everyone else. Oh, was a, it was a very, very stressful, entertaining, heart-wrenching, however you want to put it, uh, cup final on Sunday. But I think before we talk about any of that, um, we should kick off the pod... Uh, offering some sentiment and of course our thoughts to everybody um uh to everybody in Ukraine um we as a as a podcast I know I could speak for Salman Andres here I mean we don't like warmongering or aggression or anything along those lines to a sovereign nation so um Ukraine we're thinking of you if we have any listeners over there um we hope you're safe um and we wish you all the very best and we're all thinking of you over here so now that we got that out of the way, I guess um, I could introduce you too. So we got Sam and Andres as usual. Boys, we all had something going on during the cup final on Sunday, and we all somehow managed to watch it in one way or another. Sam, I'll start with you. Um, how was your cup final experience? Uh, well, I watched the f- the full match and the first half of extra time at home um and then i drove to my parents house um then i got there by the end of second extra time to watch the penalties because it was my mom's birthday and we had a, a brunch with family coming over so i watched the penalties um and I, pretty much the only match part of the match i didn't watch was the the first 15 minutes of extra time but my god <sighs> I mean, we have matches like this a lot where we look like the better team and we don't end up winning. But in this scenario against this team, it really hurt to not walk away with a with silverware um, in this match. Andreas, what was your uh, watch, watching experience like? Uh, it was rough. I had a 10-30... Well, it was an 11 a.m. kickoff for the boys I coach, so it was a 10.30 warm-up. So I didn't get to watch regular time. I started listening in my car at about minute 85, which that plus the extra five minutes was extremely back and forth. (laughs) Then I got to listen to all of extra time as I was driving to the nearest television I could find, and... The most infuriating thing was hearing the announcers give me the play-by-play of the Lukaku and then out of nowhere just go, oh, oh, just kidding. Are they they calling offside? But I did make it home to the TV and catch the penalties, which was just a a nice little chariot on top of sadness with anything football related for me on Sunday, because I did also lose the game I coached. So it was, uh, football wise, it was not a great Sunday. I took a nap, reset the day and I ended my Sunday by going to Hamilton. The play is here in Houston. So I got to have a little, uh, switch of tone, I guess you could say to my Sunday. And, uh, you mentioned that like you're reacting to the Lukaku goal. Well, I was driving during the um, Kai Havertz offside goal. And when it happened, I'm in my car and I scream at the top of my lungs. Fuck yeah. Let's go Kai Havertz. Big game player. And then I'm not watching it. It's it's, I'm just listening to it. And then they announced that it wasn't a goal. And I scream, fuck no. Like if someone was driving next to me, uh, they 100% thought that I killed someone or something terrible happened to me, but that's what it felt like. I mean, I celebrated the Havertz school like you saw him. I freaked out. I was I just got out of the shower. I, I was already almost an hour late to where I was supposed to be, um, and, and my location was a two-and-a-half-hour drive. So I get out of the shower. I see the goal. I celebrate it. Um, I nearly dropped my towel and, uh, and then the goal gets called back. It was, um, there was a few times in that match where I screamed to the optimum level. Like my vocal cords were pushed to their limit three separate times in that game. The Mount miss, 
the challenge on Chalaba and Kai Havertz, uh, his goal being ruled out. And when I got to my parents' house and I was reacting to the penalties, my mom walks in. She was like, man, this is the one thing I do not miss about you living here, Sam. <laughs> Your reaction <laughs> to these games. Because I am a mess. I am an absolute mess. And, like, when it ended, I think I just sat there on the couch with my my face in my hands for, like, a good five minutes until, like, one of my parents walked up to me and was like, Sam, you got to help us you know prepare stuff people are coming over and i'm like just give me like 30 more seconds i need to like (laughs) decompress that was rough um we'll we'll get more into that match let's start off talking about the abramovich fiasco well obviously everyone knows roman has been uh rumored aka it's kind of been confirmed to have a combined business slash monetary interests in uh vladimir putin in the past um and you know we talked about the uh conflict in ukraine and russia there's been a lot of sanctions placed on uh a lot of the emphasis of the sanctions have been placed on russian oligarchs and roman abramovich is seen as one of these oligarchs um this is you know caused british parliament others around UEFA and FIFA uh, to, you know, identify Roman Abramovich as someone who should possibly be sanctioned due to his ties with Russia. Um, and this is something that is generally known, not refuted. Um, and on Saturday, Roman puts out a statement on the club. I believe it was uh, like 100 words, something like that. Uh, 110 Shorter words. sweet. It was a 110-word statement um, saying that he's going to give up the power of the club to the trustees of Chelsea's charitable foundation. Um, This includes six members, Bruce Buck, the Chelsea chair, John Devine, he's a partner at a sports legal firm called Muckle LLP, Um, Emma Hayes, of course, the Chelsea women's manager, Um, Piara Power, which is a great name, uh, the chair of anti-discrimination network FAIR, Paul Ramos, who is Chelsea's finance director, and Sir Hugh Robertson, the former sports minister. Um, so these are supposedly the six people who are going to be running the day-to-day operations of Chelsea, you know, the, the steward stewardship of Chelsea. Um, another report came out, uh, according to Liam Tuami uh, of The Athletic, saying that nothing has really changed in terms of how the club is run. Internally, Roman still has controlling power, and it's believed he was responsible for the statement that followed up just before kickoff on uh, Saturday, which, um, you know, specifically mentioned the situation in Ukraine and condemning the actions, praying for peace, um, which was missing from the first statement, which, you know, got a lot of, you know, shtick for that. Um and even with this this statement, many fans thought it came off as neutral or didn't want to address the war crimes committed by Putin in Russia, um, which, I'm, in my opinion, I kind of don't blame him. He needs to play neutral. Um, there, In addition, Liam Twomey, he mentioned that the Board of Trustees are not all on the same page with Roman Abramovich. Um, there's a couple, you know different issues with regarding whether um it's legally allowed under charity law that you know this this the cha- this charitable organization can run it there's also suspicion amongst the uh six trustees that one of them may have a conflict of interest in regards to the invasion of ukraine um at least two board members have raised concerns privately regarding this um so it's a lot of drama, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of unknown. I don't know if you guys have watched uh, Succession on HBO. <laughs> Gives me a lot of Succession vibes where, you know, the guy, he steps down, but he's really running the show. No one really knows, you know, who has who's, you know, like where everyone's alliances stand, stuff like that. Um, it's a whole lot to decompress but zach i'll start off with you where do you stand on this whole issue i mean like you some i think roman's doing what he has to do 
um, to protect the asset, um, which is Chelsea, obviously. Um, not saying that I agree with the whole morality of his approach, but um, he's doing what he has to do. Um, at least at face value, that's what it seems like. You know, in, in reality, there really hasn't been a shift in club structure and the way it's being run. And based on what I'm hearing and seeing about the board of trustees skepticism, there's there's no way he isn't still planning on calling the shots based on who's in the board of trustees. I mean, um, let's not forget, I mean, he still owns the club and I'm not going to point fingers, but the whole conflict of interest thing is is kind of interesting because um, we don't really know like who it is that has the whole conflict of interest with Roman. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, I, I guess I just want him to do the right thing. And I'm not really too concerned in terms of who's going to be running the club. I'm more concerned with our image and the way we look as a club. And um, I think, I think he should condemn the aggression and uh, like everyone else did. And I know he rubbed, he ruffled a lot of feathers. It was a big topic uh, before the match even started. Um, a lot of people had a lot of things to say about it. And I don't know, to me, it just came off as bland and insensitive. I I, I think not specifically mentioning you know, not specifically condemning the aggression was was the big mistake here. But I I don't really know to answer your question, Sam. I don't know what's going to happen next. I know if people are floating the idea around of maybe Roman being forced to sell the club, I can't see him doing that, to be completely honest. Um, but with that being said, there also wouldn't be a shortage of of, of suitors either. So that would be sort of interesting if if that did come to fruition. But I don't know. I just think there's a space to keep your eye on because, you know, it, it, the situation is going to continue to be fluid. I bet you by the time we drop this episode, I mean, it's Monday night right now. By the time people are listening to it, the situation might completely change. It seems like every day we're getting a little bit more information. Um, so I don't really know. Andres, are, do you have any sort of grasp on the hell's going on? <laughs> Not really. I mean, this morning I woke up to something along the lines of like some Ukrainian person reached out to Roman and Roman is now in Belarus trying to broker peace. Like, I I have no clue. I mean, of course, all these rich Russian oligarchs are going to want peace, right? They're getting all their money taken away. I'm not going to sit here and, and defend what sort of things Roman might have done to get to where he is today. I don't know that. I can only speak of what he's done as the owner. And I think like he's always, like he said in the statement, kept the club's best interests at hand. Um, but yeah, I, I really don't know what to think right now. It's uh, it's crazy. So yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Um, I think something that you, you you guys have to consider as well and this is something that's also known that Russia uh, the state the, does not take uh, take too kindly with dissenters you know what I'm saying right uh, and mm-hmm. you know that has a lot to do with like his you know his, his physical safety not yeah. publicly going out and condemning Vladimir Putin, you know, I, I think a lot of people are concerned about, you know, he's worried about his monetary interests, but I also think something that needs to be considered is like his physical safety and, right. you know, like he has to play neutral right now because if he makes a statement either way, he's in trouble either way. So yeah, I, I mean, watch if you guys have a Netflix subscription, just go watch Icarus, the documentary yeah, regarding the guy that was a... the whistleblower on the mm-hmm. Olympic Committee. Like, it's no joke, and and I don't think we're we're making it up over here. Where you cross Putin's path, he he'll make sure you don't cross anyone's path anymore. Like, it it's come to that now. Like all the threats, it took three weeks for him to do it, but he. He's there. He is doing his absolute best to invade and successfully take over Ukraine. Like, 
this man it would help if he told uh if he gave instruction to his troops but the point is like i get it i get what psalm is saying like, yeah you you don't know who he has in his pocket and if roman comes out of terms like he might be in the news for getting severely injured or or worse getting his life taken away like people disappear from the map because of this man so i get that too i, I think it's an easier headline to say that basically Chelsea is Chelsky, you know, we're a Russian club now because Roman didn't say anything. Like I get why that's an easy headline and and people want to make everything so black and white. I just think we don't have all the information. Nobody is looking at it in, in a kind of microscopic way. They're just looking at the macroscopic. Oh, we didn't denounce Russia. It's like, well, I mean, he needs to find a way to fight the Russian decision by the government to start this war without, like Sam said, getting himself or his family hurt. Like there's more to it than just the money. And I find it hard to believe that a man that's been so charitable and who has been denouncing Putin left and right for the past five, ten years is whether he started sketchily. I don't think he's still. I'm, I'm, I think he's been trying to wash blood off his hands for years now. So you know what I mean? Like, I think he's been actively trying to do so. So I'm, it's too easy to just jump on the bandwagon and, and say Roman is full Putin. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do want to point out Roman's, Roman's daughter has been tweeting, you know, anti-Putin slash pro-Ukraine um stuff i guess for lack of a better word <laughs> so i mean she's she's stuck her neck out there she took the risk that's why i'm saying I, I i think roman should too granted i i do understand the risk that comes with it i get it i'm not in that position no so. we're putting ourselves at, at risk as well on zach for making these statements i mean we, we're we're at risk right now anti yeah, uh anti-russian propaganda is uh our really podcast is named after him exactly Who's coming for us yeah, yeah, exactly. Come and get me. <laughs> come and get me. Um, but yeah, I think it's a really crazy situation. Um, still, a lot more to be resolved. It seems with just like the handover process between Roman and the board of trustees. So we'll, uh, you know, keep you guys updated with what comes in um, throughout over time. And... We'll start taking new podcast names. Just yeah. in case, you know, yeah, yeah, in the yeah, back so. pocket. Yep. We are we are currently the the podcast formerly known as Roman's Empire Pod. I like Trustees Empire as well. <laughs> Board of Trustees Empire Pod. Yeah, I like that. Um, Very yeah, nice and short. Bot Empire Pod. <laughs> bots is that Board of Trustees? Okay. Yeah, bot. I thought you were calling us bots, but okay, um, like robots. Uh, Let's uh let's move on to this Carabao Cup match that I'm just dreading so much to discuss. Uh, not oh, not completely. Come, come on, no, come on. There's silver linings. To no, this. I, there I, are, there are. immediately there are. after immediately as you said that I corrected myself because there were really really good signs in this match. It's just disappointing. It's just very disappointing. Just start calling you Edu Mendy. It's a great oh, save. Yeah. Start calling me uh, Keppa. After I would, I would have called you that if he didn't make it save. Yeah, okay, that's true. You can't call me Keppa anymore. <laughs> um, no, nah, we'll talk about Keppa. But uh, that was a joke. So starting 11, we ran with the 3-4-3. Mendy in goal, Chalabino, Thiago Silva, and Rudiger is the back three. Dave, Kovacic, Conte, and Marcus Alonso in the midfield. Mount, Kai Havertz, and Christian Pulisic as the front three. Um, so, again, very pleasing to not see Lukaku in there. I think the front three did very well all together, um, not considering the misses that they had. Because this is an issue that we've had for a while. But let's start off with the officiating, why don't we? I think that's the main 
main part. Um, th- this is something that comes up in every domestic cup final that Chelsea plays in. Our last four or five. Um, but once again, English referees and VAR, they prove to us all that they're just, in fact, the fucking worst in world football. There's there's no comparison. Um, a missed card for Navi Keita's tackle on Chalaba. Um, could have been yellow, could have been red. Some might argue. Um, I, I, I think it, any card was warranted. Like, a card at least was warranted. I mean, Chalaba needed six stitches after that. Um, and I don't know, Zach, you think that was a red, huh? Yeah. You know what he did? He kicked, he him, kicked him in the penis. penis. That's true. <laughs> he, did. he did kick him in the penis. Dude, how is that not a red? I mean, he took a, he took a, what? Every single stud in, from the bottom of Nabi Keita's right boot to the groin. And I mean, we see that get, we see straight reds for those types of challenges all the time. And I think it's, I don't even think it's the type of contact Nabi Keita made. I think it's the way he made the contact. He kind of slowed down for a bit and then jumped in for the challenge at the last minute. He was the one that was late on that. And um, it, it was fucking bullshit. I mean, I, I don't know what else. What else needs to happen to constitute a red card in that situation? And like Trevor Chalaba said in his tweet, the ref is standing right there. The picture Trevor Chalaba posted, the ref is looking right at the play as it's happening. He's maybe 15 or 20 yards away max. There's there's no way that that's not a red card in my situation. I think he swallowed his whistle. I think he didn't want to completely change the whole outlook of the match um, because, that you know, obviously Liverpool going down to 10 men, getting leggy as the match goes on is going to make a big impact. But for fuck's sake, I mean, we have to get the benefit of the doubt there. And, and, and go look at the monitor and see where the contact is. It's just, I mean, and in both ways, the type of contact he made, the lateness of the challenge, it, it ticks every box. Andreas, do you feel strongly one way or another? <laughs> is there a different way to feel? I mean... <laughs> Zach I don't know. For me, for me, I I just think that if the, if he called if he gave him a yellow, I would have been okay. Like I'm not in the position that it should it should have and it must have been a red. I think it could have been a red, but it also could have been a yellow. Like definitely a warning has to have been. But I just don't um, see how you walk away from that with nothing. Period. Like yeah, exactly. Oh, and like. The thing that pissed me off is like during the matches, because I, I went back and watched everything. Like during match commentary, I believe it was the CBS crew saying like, oh, it was nothing. ESPN. And then like it took the post-match man of the match at nighttime for Jamie character, Jamie Carragher and Mike Richards to be like, oh, shit, no, we got this wrong. It's like, how? Like how can your bias – get to the point to where this happens once a year now to Chelsea and where a player legitimately gets studs in the knee to hip region. Like I can point three seasons and and we'll get to the details of the finals specifically, but like two, two years ago it was Maguire on Mishi. I believe it was also two years ago or maybe earlier when Son did it to Rudiger. Mm Mm-hmm. That one got the VAR called correct, but it wasn't even blown originally. And then this one, man, Trevor came out and said he had six stitches done, yet nothing came of it. Like, it's really just so, so ridiculous that it happens to us constantly. And it's not not just what we'll discuss later with, with offside. It's these aggression red cards because that's the thing it's aggression so yeah i i think it should have been reviewed just just one more point on that we weren't the only ones that got shafted by var this weekend everton did also with a clear handball Handball. that the referee had the option to var check as well so it's 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 okay if you miss the call but make it right you have the opportunity to do that and there's a lot of other footballing federations around europe that or refereeing federations around europe that get it right like zero statement from our refs in either of those cases by the way yeah and by the mm-hmm. way 
just to, just to kind of caveat that, I, you know, there was an MLS's opening weekend this weekend, and they seem to get the VAR spot on. I mean, they make their decision within a minute, and it's the correct decision, just beyond me. Yeah, I mean, the Lukaku one also, that 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 is still being debated. Um, we did get a, twi- a Twitter question. This one's from Nana at NanaYeb3. He's, uh, he, was he, she? Is it Nana? She, I think she. It's she. Yeah. she said, hello, pod. Do you think that Lukaku's goal was an offside? I've watched it over and over again, and I still can't see it. They, had, they did the same to us against Leicester in the FA Cup last season with Chilwell. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, you know, like, just don't, I still don't understand how they get, like, the relative location for these two lines because, um, I mean, the commentators were kind of idiots on ESPN, at least, saying that the line was made at, you know, Lukaku's the end of his sleeve because that's a handball either way. If it hits his elbow or anything like that, that's a handball. So that's, that wasn't what they used. They used his knee. It, you, if you look at the line, you can see that it's, it's you know, the front of the knee is where the line touches and it also happens to touch his arm. So it's definitely not being used off, you know, where his sleeve is, but... I just like you can see that Van Dyke's foot. You know, there's like a different in co- difference in color in the grass. You can see Van Dyke's foot was farther ahead than Lukaku's knee, and they just changed the rule this season, where if it, if an offside call is too close to call, you give the benefit to the attacker. Where has yeah. that rule gone? They 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 just implemented it this year, and it's not being applied. I mean, it really, I still can't understand, like, how we have this technology and we're not able to, you know, get the recalls right with something that's objective like that. Not not only that, Sam, but whatever happened to clear and obvious, what is clear and obvious about overturning that call? Well, it, it was it called off, it was called offsides. Was it? Was it? Called, was it yeah, it was, okay, okay. It was okay. called because offside. Still went so in, and I mean, he took his goal really well. Which I but sh- that's the thing; sh- it shouldn't have been called offside to begin with. Yeah. The rule says you play Keep the, flag the down. ball exactly. You mm-hmm. blow the whistle, and then the flag goes. Okay, it's a goal. Let's check the video. Like that's how it's supposed to be. And at the end of the day, man, like the lines are supposed to be thicker. You're supposed to give the benefit of the doubt to the attacker. And yet again, nobody's looking at the point of release of the ball. It was the same exact issue last year in the FA Cup final with Leicester City, with the Chilwell goal to draw Leicester City, where the the frame they selected there, because I haven't gone back to find the exact frame, but the frame they selected there, the ball had already left Thiago Silva's foot. Yeah. You need to find a way to where there's duality in the cameras, where one like one part of the software is looking for the ball and the other part of the software is looking for the player. Because right now, you're just clicking, 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 and the VAR ref can choose whatever freeze frame he wants. It's not about getting better software. It's about getting better human beings that have the IQ to to implement that correctly. It's, hey, it, ro- robot refs didn't mess up at the Club World Cup, just saying. Uh, but that's but that's what I'm saying about all the other like leagues around around the world. They seem to have some sort of grasp grasp on it. I know that there's a lot of controversy with it in Turkey. Like I, we heard Nico talk about that in the Champions League. But you know, not everybody gets it right. But the majority of them have seemed to get it. And it, and at least in the major tournaments, the calls for the most part, the percentage of correct calls are is much higher than it is in England. I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me, and I never even looked it up, but I'm pretty sure all three of us would bet our house on that. It's just, it's 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 getting ridiculous now. And, yeah, and the the thing is, like with with offsides, that's something that is objective. Mm-hmm. It's not. It doesn't require any subjectivity of the ref to make a decision. They don't need to decide anything. It's an exact measurement. So, why can't we get that part right? That that's the most frustrating one. Mm-hmm. Like we we benefited from VAR as well. They took away uh, was Matip who Matip. scored the header. I mean, we benefited from that. It was you know like in real time. If we didn't have VAR, that that little hold by Van Dyke would not have been called. It I mean, required... in real time, we win this game two one. Then yeah, 
Why? Where's the? Oh, I mean, the, no, how many because other offside goals we did we get take like. Actually, I no, know, those but those were called. Dead. Those, those were called. Dead. Yeah, right. in real time, it wouldn't have. It wouldn't have mattered. Like we we benefited VA from VAR, uh, but I mean, we would have played still... against ten men for God knows how long. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, it it's why should we have to discuss that? Why is that the first I mean, thing we're talking about? Yeah, we should be talking about way. the match. Right, and oh, glad. Thankfully, we'll get to it next, but. I'll put it this way. Had we played Man City, the Champions League final, had that been a domestic cup, we would have lost. Somehow, yeah. Kai Havertz would have been offside. I promise you. Somehow, <laughs> that goal gets taken back. Because mm-hmm. it's now been the last fi- the the last three domestic cup finals since, since uh, VAR was introduced, where we've had ridiculous calls. It was the red card on Kovacic against Arsenal, which changed the game entirely last year. The non-handball slash Chilwell's goal, and now this year, like we're making the finals, and we've been—I'd say—I'll argue that the Leicester one we could have lost regardless, but the Arsenal and this one is unforgivable, man. Like those are two trophies that should have ended up in our cabinet, and and the referees should not be the main talking point in in matches like this. All right, let's talk about the front three, um, Andreas. You were right earlier, actually. Um, when you said it should have been 2-1, uh, but not because of VAR, but because of our <laughs> our inability to finish. Mason Mount and Christian Pulisic really struggling today. Um, I mean, other than, than, other than the finishing, they both played extremely well. They got, a, you know, they got themselves into great scoring positions. They were making runs behind Kai Havertz when he couldn't drop in to collect the ball. Um, it was overall a good performance from both of them, but you know, Mason Mount missed not one but two golden opportunities. One off, you know, like Kai Havertz, that ball that he played in, you know, the cutback and you know, chipping in between the two defenders. Um, and Mason Mount volleyed it wide, and then Pulisic, an amazing ball over the top to Mason Mount. And he hits the post. And then also Christian Pulisic himself uh, had to, you know, he, he had another chance where he hit it right into the keeper um, really early on. So it, it, just not much to show statistically for each player, honestly. But they could have easily had three goals between them. Um, we got a, tw- a Twitter question from Michael at Michael... That's it's uh I think let's see eight e's something he said, like that. <laughs> he said should not have even gone to pens. Mounts should have scored under no pressure from the defense and still missed. Um, Andreas, did you want to talk about this or the next one? The next one, yeah. So yeah, this, next one. Yeah, I mean this one is not really a question. It was just a statement, but right. This one uh, is an, and from another Michael. Our next question, Michael Conan at M. Conan. He said, does the formation need tweaking slightly? Nobody in the front three today could hold possession very well, and the midfield was super stretched. Should we go to a midfield three with a striker partnership? Maybe if just for big games, uh, that that will be more open. Andreas? Um We've tried that. Here's my thing. The 5-3-2, or you want to call it the 3-5-2, we're just not built for it. Our, our striking duos don't have sort of chemistry, and then we never get the width we want just quite right. There's always something wrong with the 3-5-2 in terms of buildup or, or chance creation. I think the 3-4-3 does its job. I mean, we we can complain about, about like the retaining of possession, but Liverpool essentially had their starting eleven. They had who they wanted on the pitch, and and I think yeah maybe in in build up the the front three weren't doing their part, but at the same time I think having that sort of front three is what allowed all those chances that we didn't put away to be created. You know, you talk about our midfield being super stretched out. Well, our front three completely stretched out that back four, and Klopp even had to take out Matip out of the game to try to keep up going into extra time. So. 
to me, I think it's not – I think we're just now going back to the 3-4-3 three, three for good if that's going to be the move or or whether we try to go to the back four. In the future, when we have the right personnel, sure, a midfield three would be great, but I still think we're built to have a front three, um, not really a, a striker partnership. I mean, was it that bad? I thought it was – I thought it worked – pretty well I, I thought we created a lot of chances I think you know inside six minutes we could have been one nil up with Pulisic Mount's opportunities I think if Mount is you know in in a better rhythm meaning not in and out of the squad with injuries so much maybe if he had a run of four or five matches or he's playing consistently he puts one of those or maybe both of those away I didn't think it was all that bad I, I again I, I always say this word but fluid when Kai's in there, it looks way more fluid. We have more than one approach to attack them. Um, you know, he was dropping in deep. Pulisic and Mount were making these great runs up the middle. And that little tiny clipped ball just over, just in between the two center backs over their heads seemed to be, you know, the magic formula there. And it, it, it looked like it was something that we specifically game planned for because we knew that they were going to give us that space. And, you know, if Kai can drag out one of the center backs and we were looking for that ball every single time, you know, again, Kai would drift out wide. One of them would fill in the middle and we created chances. We just didn't put them away. So, again, do you really want to go back and try to reinvent the wheel and try to come up with something completely different and maybe see if it creates chances and scores goals? Because before you can score, you got to create the chances and we're creating the chances. So I don't get what else needs to change. I mean, maybe Lukaku should start scoring goals when he comes on and, you know, maybe he becomes a starter in the future. Maybe that is is the magic formula. I don't think so. I, I still think it's having Kai in there. I mean, he had four chances created in the first half alone. One of those chances have to go in. And I think, you know, on another day they do. And, you know, it, it's it's rare that we go – and create that many chances and go nil-nil. I know our finishing is shit, but we created a lot more chances than we normally do. The first 20 minutes of the first half and the first 20 minutes of the second half, we were all over them. They couldn't breathe. I think that was some of the best football I've seen us play since the Juve match uh, Mm -hmm. in the group stage of the Champions League. I mean, it was just fabulous. Everything was perfect. The pressing, the counter-pressing, retaining possession, creating chances. We just didn't get the goal. And I think also... We're not really missing too much in the midfield because, I mean, Kovacic in particular, I think, played probably his best match I think I've ever seen him play um, Mm -hmm. on every loose ball. um, You know, like, did you you guys see that little um, one-two pass he he made, like, really early on? I think it was in the lead-up to the – I think it was the, um, the Mason Mount miss. Or the Pulisic miss, where uh, Alonso passed the ball to him and he did like a spin around and kind of like passed it back with his back heel. Did you guys notice that? That was I. I gotta find a clip of that because I just I noticed that and that was. I mean, he was he was playing like out of his mind, and then of course there's Angolo Conte. Um, I think that what Andreas talked about um, about Jorginho last episode. Uh. I think if we had Jorginho in the midfield, um, we would have seen more issues. But Conte and Kovacic, they played unreal. Um, but And so I don't think that we need to add an extra midfielder. It looked, We looked really good. Um, Does Havertz, a midfield get more complete than Conte and Kovacic, though? I mean, what, what other element are you going to add there? Scoring. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, but yeah, but we're creating the chances up top. It's just right, right, shit right. luck. Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, it, before we get into more detail about Kai and stuff, I think, you know, you talk about Kovacic playing well again. Like I said, I think he is very, very important to what we want to do the rest of the season. I think he's one of those players that just shines against Liverpool. We have a few of those guys that always drop 10 out of 10s. I would say like Rudiger always plays well. Alonso, for some odd reason, mm-hmm. which makes no sense physically, <laughs> always plays amazing against Mo Salah. Yeah, on the defensive end. Yep, yeah. uh, Pulisic usually has a great game. For some reason, this time around, he couldn't score on Liverpool. And then the main man right now, Kai, 
has has had great Liverpool performances in the past, and he adds another one here. So again, it's we're not. I'm not trying to say Jorginho is is unusable. I just think in a game as high paced as this one with Liverpool, where you need to take advantage of the fact that they do have someone like Trent Alexander Arnold that doesn't defend when he's a defender. You can't have a guy that's going to tinker with the ball 12 times before deciding to go make a pass forward. Yeah, so yeah. going back to that, like that's why someone like Kovacic and Conte who are looking to just progress the ball instead of just keeping it themselves is so important. Um, all right, let's get more into Kai Havertz because he was a man possessed just playing such smooth, cool football. Um, I really can't remember a time where I was frustrated with something that he did. Uh, seemed to make the right decision almost every time. Um, seemed to not lose the ball, really. Um, he, uh, you know, he dribbled. Uh, he had four dribbles completed, 86% uh, pass completion rate, five chances created, eight duels won. Um, he also scored his pen in the shootout, which uh, is was very important. And I've been saying this, he's been... He's become such a reliable big game player that I couldn't even imagine what we would have looked like if we had Lukaku in there, to be honest. I mean, I, 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 I shouldn't even have to mention Lukaku when I'm talking about Kai Havertz because, you know, it's kind of discrediting how good Kai Havertz did. But also, it's it's okay to mention, like, in comparison, like, what he has been able to do these last three, four matches. Oh, sorry. No, it's only been two matches that he's played. Yeah. Um, and how it, it's, it's a, the stark contrast between what we see with him and what Lukaku's looked like. I mean, we will get to Lukaku in a bit because he was, he was decent on the day. But, Andreas, I'll start off with you. How are we feeling about Kai Havertz starting at the nine moving forward? I think he's bought into the idea, which is half the battle there. Because last season, for example, whenever he was playing there, he still is like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't really know what I am. And then in an interview this past week, he referred to himself as the nine. I think that was exactly what he said. I am the nine. I'm and what I, I get that I'm playing well with my teammates, but now I need to add concrete statistics. I think he finally understands that what is needed because he even said, I'm no longer a talent. Like, I need to be producing at a top level. Like, I'm no longer the kid that's coming in. I'm I'm, I'm ready for the next step. So I think that getting the trust to get the starts now is really feeding into this. I, I keep saying ego because that's what worked with Ziyech. But in a way, like, Kai Havertz needs to live up to his price tag. And I think he's ready for it, which is the last thing that was missing. He always came in, looked so nonchalant. Always looked like he wasn't trying, even though he was, just because of the way his German nature truly is. But I like this Kai Havertz with a bite, and I want to keep seeing Kai Havertz start because I'm all for Kai Havertz being the guy that goes uh, forehead to forehead with a defender that tries to kick him after the play is dead. Like That's the kind of thing you need from your striker off the ball, and I think Kai just keeps growing into the kind of role we want him to be. Yeah, he's a big game player. He just performs in every single big game that he plays in. Um, and I think those players are really important. I saw a tweet that said, you know, um, it looked like Drogba passed down the big game player a trait to Hazard, and Hazard passed it down to Kai. And I hope that's the case. It looks like it is. I mean, can't really recall a cup match or a one-off match where he didn't play well when he started. Um and I think we I think we ride it out. I mean, I've been one of the biggest proponents of starting Kai ever since Lukaku's, you know, interview and his form dipped. So, I mean, good on him, man. It, it, this is this is, again, one of those things where you have to ride the hot hand if you're too cool, you know, regardless of how Lukaku comes in. Unless I mean, unless Lukaku's coming in and scoring every single match that he's playing in, you got to keep playing Kai, because even if you do have Lukaku there and he scores every so often, Kai's going to be creating tw- you know, exponentially you know, three, four, five times the amount of chances that Lukaku is going to be able to create. So you just want to have that outlet up there, that that X factor, that player that just has the ability to pull magic out of a hat or, 
a player that's so dynamic like him. He could run in behind. He could check in deep. He could sort of play as an attacking 10. He can, you know, float out wide and be effective there. He has a good shot on him as well. He's good in the air. I mean, kind of has it all. So the best place to utilize that skill set's in the middle of the pitch. So just purely on that basis, he should be playing there. And, and But, you know, we're talking about Lukaku, and he ended up not having a bad match, to be mm-hmm. honest, when he came on. I think he came on in like around the 75th minute um, of regular time and uh, ended up playing a total of 45 minutes. Um, He had one shot, one dribble. He won four out of five of his duels. Should have had the goal if it wasn't ruled offside. Um, And, I mean, I think I just saw a lot more movement from him. A lot more movement. You know, these – the the very static and, you know, just standing around Lukaku that we've been complaining about. We didn't really see that here uh, yesterday, but um, we did get a Twitter question. This one's from Prashanth at Prosh uh, underscore CFC, who has been absolutely on fire on our Discord lately, Um, (laughs) just going to bat for Lukaku. I got to give respect to anyone that tries that hard to, you know, defend Lukaku like this. But um, he did write in a Twitter question. He said, how do we integrate Lukaku into the setup? We looked exactly like we did last season, where we looked great but ended up eventually missing chances when it mattered. Will Tuchel work on getting this to work in potential one-off upcoming big games? I mean, how do you integrate Lukaku? You make... You get him to play the way he did in this cameo. He fits. We've seen him fit in a 3-4-3 this season. He just needs to move and not be selfish when creating spaces. He has to be more than a one-dimensional striker that runs in a straight line towards goal and waits to poach a goal. And and that's how he got his goal today. Movement. The run came from like a... Uh, It was like a diagonal run from the middle to the outside, and then he did his dribbling inside the box. Like, that's the sort of thing we need Lukaku to do. It's, I'm not saying completely copy Kai Havertz, because I don't think he has the the agility to to completely go out in the wing, but drop in. Play the ball back to your midfielders. They play the ball through to the wingers, and then you run into the space that now is behind them. Mm -hmm. That's all you need. Get the guy to be motivated on the pitch to work for others, and and almost just like take off the pressure on yourself to have to score. Like let the flow of the game bring that to you. I think that really is what happens because early in the season, again, using Arsenal example, it was his first match. Nobody was like, oh, Lukaku has to score day one. But then after he got hurt and the goals weren't coming from somebody else, all this pressure is on the big man to score. Just play the game. Get in the right places. Do the right thing for team. When you do the right thing, good things happen. And so I don't think that Tuchel needs to rewrite the formula. The formula is there. He just needs to commit. What do you think about that, Zach? I think think it's important that Tuchel doesn't try to fall for this whole, okay, he had a good performance. Let's give him, you know, some more time. I, 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 I still think that Kai should be the number one. Now, Lukaku should be used as a sort of, for lack of a better word, super sub, similar to, to the way he was used here, right? Just to give us a different element in the attack when we really when we need to be aggressive and get a goal. The only way that I can see Lukaku getting his way back into the team is if he just scores a ridiculous amount of goals off the bench. I mean, if I was a manager, that would be the only that would be the only way you can get back into this team. Because when Kai plays, he creates so many chances. And the funny thing is, I think him and Trent, uh, Trent had six chances created, Kai had five, and I think uh, they became first and second in most chances created in a Carabao Cup final. Um, it just kind of gives you an idea of how involved Kai actually was in the build-up play. And I know, Sam, you said four or five matches. It seems like that, even though Kai's only started for two, because it just seems to fit so well, and he he seems to find the game more naturally as opposed to chasing it. Um, And I think for Lukaku, Andres, he has to kind of rip a page out of Kai's book in that way too. Just let the game come to you. 
right? Yeah. Just get into the flow of it, you know, link up some play. It's fine if you don't get your goal, but if you make a hockey assist or you're creating for your teammates, that's going to give you the confidence to strike through the ball next time when you're in on goal, right? It, it, it's those little things that just kind of add, it's about getting those little victories and building that into, you know, moment, enough momentum to get that goal or to get two goals or go on a run of games where you're just scoring left and right. But for me, guys, I, I still think he's a super sub. I mean, granted, he did a lot in this game and, and he looked good, but that's it. I mean, he, he looked good. There's not really much else to be said beyond that. I, I think Kai has looked much better. Lukaku's other shot. If you have Kai in there, sorry to cut you off, Sam, but if you have Kai in there with Lukaku, you're also forcing him out wide, and now Kai doesn't become as effective either because he, the old, I don't, it's it's unfair to even criticize him because he played so well, but he did drift out of the game when he got pushed out wide. He wasn't as involved. He wasn't getting as much touches on the ball. So if you want to integrate Lukaku, you also have to find a way to make that work with Kai because right now Kai's our best attacker full stop. Yeah, and I mean, you also have to consider that Lukaku also, I mean, at the end of, I think it was in stoppage time of regular of regular time, um, they he had one shot like that. That what's this guy's name? Callagher had a really nice save off of uh, you know it was Marcus Alonso running in really late and somehow getting the ball off right before it uh, went out of bounds. And Lukaku had a great touch towards the goal, and this guy Callagher stuck his leg out um, and saved it. That could have ended the game. Yeah, right it was there. a back heel. He like yeah. he kind of, he tried to flick it. It was a real. It was a, it was, it was a great, great touch. Yeah, yeah. So he, you know, we. It wasn't just the offsides goal. Like he looked really good. I don't think that he just looked good. He looked really good. Um, so let let's see what happens with that. Kepa versus Mendy. Uh, you know, Tuchel's always spoken highly of both players leading up to the match. Um, we've seen this happen before um, with Kepa and Mendy. You know, Kepa has the best penalty-saving record out of any other goalkeeper in Chelsea's history. Mendy had the game of his life. I mean, crazy saves. Um, arguably would have won man of the match if, if, if he stayed on. But, um, you know, ele- Tuchel electing to bring Kepa in at the very end. And hindsight is twenty twenty. Kepa didn't save any of the 11 penalties he faced, including the Callagher penalty, which is like the ultimate, like, dagger to my heart, followed by the miss, obviously, where he just skied it. Um, and it sucks, like... Like, Lusa, an 18-year-old kid who, you know, like, I never heard of this keeper before until until yesterday. And he sinks his his penalty, and now I have to hear it from Liverpool fans for the next year about how Kepa couldn't save a single penalty and then missed his. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's just, I don't think it's it's very fair to, to criticize him on this, um, but... It's just not a good image. If if you aren't aware of what Tuchel's done in the past, Zach, what did you think of Tuchel's decision? And you know, like the outcome, like what 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 will Tuchel do in the future uh, in these similar situations? Like you said, it's hindsight, right? Um, at face value, it makes sense because you have Kepa, who has that incredible penalty record. Um. But I said it in our other group chat, so I'm not a fan of subbing your goalkeeper when he's in form like that. I mean, Mendy was making some pretty ridiculous saves. Granted, he's not the best penalty stopper in the world. To put it this way, instead of bringing on a keeper to save penalties, because sometimes it does work, I would have rather, you know, brought a player on to score a penalty. I think that's more important. Right. I, I I just don't know. Hindsight's 2020. Look, I'm not mad at Kepa. I'm not down on him. I'm not even down on Tuchel for making the call because, again, it's a bang, bang decision. And if you want to look at it statistically and numbers wise, it makes sense. Right. It's just more of a for me. I think it's more of a 
feel it out kind of thing. Let's see how our goalkeeper is doing. Amendi was making some ridiculous saves. It looked like his confidence was growing. Even after he made the mistake, he kept it really cool every time the ball, you know, got to his feet. He just looked like the calmer character. And I think Kepa not being in the rhythm of the game, obviously, you know, not being as locked in and focused as Mendy was for, you know, the hundred and something minutes that he played, 118, 19 minutes that he played. I don't know. I again I'm I'm not down on it. Me personally, if I'm if I'm the manager, I don't do it, but that's easy for me to say because I don't have to make that decision in the heat of the moment like like Tuchel does. But Tuchel's a guy that likes to stick to his guns. I think the response by the team towards Keppo was phenomenal. I think the response from the fans towards Keppo was even better. I don't think any of us are really down on him too much. You know, he, he he's done a lot and he's been through a lot and I think he's redeemed himself more than anything. And and this, you know, penalty miss, a goalkeeper missing a penalty is not something that you can blame a goalkeeper, you know, for losing a game for. It's ultimately the responsibility of the whole team. We couldn't score. We didn't get the goal. We played the whole 120 minutes. And that's ultimately what happens. You know, penalty shootouts usually aren't a matter of who's the better team. It's who could put the ball in the back of the net out of the five or six kicks that you get. In this case, fucking 11. So, yeah, it was a struggle. But I'm not down on him. Yeah, I mean, nobody nobody should be blaming Kepa here. I think, Zach, you mentioned you'd rather bring a guy to score a penalty. I want to completely reverse that because... A guy that comes in just to shoot a penalty is cold. I mean, look at uh, England in the Euros. Sancho and Rashford didn't touch the ball. Awful penalties. It's different. Shooting a ball, you have to feel the grass, feel the, the field, feel the ball. You're get used to your boots in the in the conditions of the of it. I think Kepa knows what his role is in a cup final. We won three different shootouts in the past year with Kepa coming in, specifically the Super Cup where he was brought in to finish out the game for the penalties. We have done this before and succeeded with it. So I don't think it's a matter of Kepa not being focused on it. I think he came into this match fully thinking, if this goes to 120, I'm ready. So I don't think it, he needs to feel for it. He needs to just be ready to to jump and dive and, and make sure he studied up on pens. Two times he, I, I think he guessed correctly four times, twice getting a hand on it. The guy, the guy was ready. I think it's just harsh when the last penalty comes down to the keepers. And and I've mentioned this maybe like three or four years ago. I think it was one of the first seasons where when Courtois was still a keeper, and he also skied a pen for Chelsea. Goalkeepers do not shoot on target. Goalkeepers kick the ball fifty freaking stories up in the air when they have to kick the ball. Their muscle memory is to lean back and get some air underneath the ball. Like, I get it. In the situation, he probably should do better and lean forward, but I hate, I hate it when it comes down to keepers. I I would have felt awful for Kelleher, too, if he if the roles were reversed and he was the one missing the penalty. Keepers' jobs are not to score, it's to, to block. I think He didn't either. Whole, <laughs> right. I think <laughs> the thing with Tuchel, like, you can't get mad at Tuchel or Kepa because there is success in this plan. Like Mendy, Mendy, yeah. sure, he stopped one pen in the AFCON. But like Mendy has never, if I'm not mistaken, stopped a pen in a Chelsea jersey. Interesting. So I, I I may be throwing my neck out on the line, but Kepa has proven that this is his role. And honestly, I was happy to see the sub come on. I I was totally for it because I've seen it happen in this season to win a trophy and Keppa knows that he's good at these. Like, he didn't come in looking shy. He was doing his usual thing. And again, unlucky that he couldn't get a, you know, his hand on some of these. It he just really sucks. fucked up the Van Dyke one. He I cheated mean, yeah, over and he's, and he, I mean. It takes more. I Honestly, good on Van Dyke for still going to that side. That takes Listen, if you're a goalkeeper going into pens, it's your job to shithouse. Like, that, 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 that's part of your M.O. You got to stop shots and you got to shithouse and get it to the player's head. You got to make them make eye contact with you. You got to throw them off of their game. You got to. Yeah. You I'm know. not saying I'm not saying that he shouldn't yeah. have done that. I'm just saying he should have saved it. He knew yeah. he was going to go yeah. that way. Agreed. Whatever. The, and the Icona one, whatever his name is, the, the center back. You got to. Yeah. Kanate, yeah. Yeah. Kanate, yeah. He. Uh, 
got a got a hand on that one too. Yeah. If he saved any of them, he wouldn't have had to kick. Very unfortunate, but that's just how that's how it happened. Um, and that's what football is all about. That's just what it is. Um, we still got the FA Cup, you know. So, and we still have Champions League. <laughs> we could still do the quadruple. We can still do. Let's focus on the treble first. Um, hey, at least we know our penalty takers can score as long as it doesn't get to the keeper. Yeah, that's that's something that should be noted. The quality of the penalties was unreal for both sides. For both sides, yeah. Um, all right, let's let's uh, let's talk about the FA Cup match. Um, we are playing against Luton um, at uh, at Luton Town, wherever they they play. And uh, uh, Lampard's Kenneth. last game as a manager was against them right. in the FA Cup as well. Right, Kenil- Kenilworth Road is the name of their stadium. Kenilworth, Kenilworth, like yeah. Um, so not I don't know too much about Luton. I know that they've won four of their last five matches, and they're currently sitting sixth in the championship. So they're looking for that uh, playoff spot, uh, potential promotion. Uh, do you guys have anything else you wanted to add, Andreas? Uh, you know a little something about Luton Town. <laughs> I I really don't know much. I I would be a little bit more concerned about this game if they had taken down any of the Giants in the FA Cup. But looking into the, their last couple of matches within the tournament, they had Harrogate Town, who I had never heard of before, and Cambridge United leading up to this. So I don't think they've been tested. It's not some sort of Cinderella story that has been knocking out Premier League Giants. I I think that after the way this team has been playing the last couple of weeks, I think that we should expect a better performance I know sometimes these uh, tournament matches against lower divisions can be kind of a banana peel, but I really do think that we're seeing a, a different team like we've been discussing with Kai up front, and I feel like the, the the players on the pitch are rallying around the fact that they know they're playing better. So I expect a good performance from, from the team. I, I still think it'll be a strong side. I don't think it'll be full of kids uh, from the academy by any means. So, again, I don't have much to say on Luton, but in terms of my expectation from Chelsea, I, I expect a good, strong performance. Yeah, I think this is a good chance for us to redeem ourselves, and I think the players are going to be up for it too. Um, it's it's the perfect opportunity to go out there, control, dominate, control a game for the full 90. You'll get a relatively comfortable win, hopefully smash a couple goals in and and then continue, you know, because again, I, I and Tuchel harped on this post-match after Liverpool, we played really well. It wasn't a game where, you know, we didn't play well and we lost. You know, I, I think we did enough to win that game besides score a goal in, in, you know, the 120 minutes. So I hope we put out a strong side. I mean, I'm going to kind of stick my neck out there. I think it'll be a clean sheet. Um, we've been defending extremely well as of late. I think having Trevor Chalaba back is huge because he looks like he, I mean, he looked, he looked amazing against Liverpool. So um, I'm going to go three nil Chelsea. I think, I think we put a solid performance on and we just kind of, you know, make it a relatively comfortable win. I, I, I think the team needs to like put in four or five goals against this side. Um, We just need to see the ball get into the back of the net over and over again. And, you know, the good thing is we have a really, really easy uh, upcoming schedule. Burnley, followed by Newcastle, followed by the next Lille match, which is our toughest match of the group. Then we got Norwich, Brentford, Southampton, Leeds. All of those clubs are currently struggling. And we have the opportunity to just blow them all out and go on this crazy run where we just, like, figure it out. And then finish off the season on a, on a strong note. We do have that potential, guys. Yeah, I, I agree with the fact that I think a lot of goals need to come in this match, Sam. I think for a different reason. Number one, yeah, we need to get break the duck from from the championship. But you mentioned it being an easier schedule. I, I think, for example, the Burnley match is going to be quite tough. 
they just beat Tottenham, right? They beat someone yeah. big recently. Yeah, yeah, they beat Spurs. Yeah. They're on a little win streak here. So they're they're like pushing out of the relegation zone right now. They're two matches behind, and they're only one point below Everton to get out of the relegation. Then you mentioned we have Newcastle. They've been playing a little bit better. I think they're a little bit more safe. It, so it's it's maybe a little different there. But the the eventual Leeds match, they might be on a new manager high. Uh, Marsh, the U.S. national manager, Jesse Marsh. I, I blanked on his first name. He's now there. I expect the Leeds players to not run around like headless chickens. And they have some talent on that side. And that's a rivalry match. It's just these lower level sides. Norwich is dead. Norwich I'm not worried about. But Burnley, who's pushing for for safety Leeds, who's pushing for safety everton is pushing for safety those are the dangerous matches i think that's the why i we need the goals now to come in with those into those matches with tons of confidence not trying to break the duck against a team that's parking three buses in front of the goal so i think we're all on the same page i think we i, I think the boys are hungry and you know they're do it i think it's doing it in a fashion where we absolutely just dismantle them completely. It would be really nice to see a good old smackdown uh, after, you know, cup final disappointment. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we'll be recording after that match. Obviously, um, it'll be, you know, one of our newer condensed pods where, you know, we'll, uh, we'll we'll quickly review the match, give our take, and then preview the match ahead of the weekend. So, you know, Good run of games coming up for Chelsea. Um, you know, keep your eyes on this space. We'll be updating you on the Roman situation as well as, you know, as we continue to record every week. And until next week, oh, don't forget to follow us on Twitter too, at Roman's Empire Pod. Now, until next week, keep the blue flag flying high.